Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Ann Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Allison Raskin, a leading voice in mental health advocacy and the New York Times bestselling author of the books, I Hate Everyone But You, a novel, and Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. Allison, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I I feel so much like I could have pulled questions that had the same sign-offs as the title of either of the books mentioned in that bio. <laughs> and so I feel like this is going to be a really, this is going to be right in your wheelhouse, I hope. Yeah, my third book is called Please Send Help. So I think they all sort of fit within. <laughs> yeah, you're you're very much working within like the advice column genre. Um, <laughs> so this feels uh, like just a perfect, perfect pairing. And um, the only thing now I wish is that I could have gotten a letter about somebody who hates everyone but one person. But um, I guess into every life, a little rain must fall. And if that's ours, there are worse things to deal with. Yes. Would you mind... Whenever you get a moment, reading our first letter, and we will start just fixing problems right away. Okay. Our first letter is subject concerned but clear-headed. My daughter has recently started bringing around her girlfriend to family events. I love my daughter, but she has struggled to make friends all her life, and many people find her off-putting. The few girlfriends she's ever had have all broken up with her pretty quickly, usually because she gets too invested too quickly and comes off as desperate. I know she is a romantic and wants to get married, but she also doesn't listen to anyone who wants to help her improve her social graces, grooming habits, or career so that she can find a good match. Her new girlfriend is stunningly beautiful and charming. Everyone in the family liked her immediately. She's in college, is smart and ambitious and stylish, I find it strange that my daughter values these things in her, but never seems to want to cultivate them for herself. My daughter usually doesn't get far enough with girls to invite them to family events, but this girl has apparently been with her for six months and now comes with her to everything. My family and I cannot decide on why. We know this is headed for disaster, but my daughter acts as if us trying to protect her from hurt is hurting her. I love my daughter very much, and that's why I'm expressing my concerns and suspicions of this girlfriend's motivations. I will always be there for the fallout, but I don't want her to be hurt by this girl at all. Oh, I have so many feelings. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this was interesting. I don't often have a sort of instinct on whether or not I think a letter is like fake. And usually my sort of stance is like, if it is, that's fine. Um, I'm happy to answer any kind of problem someone can think of, whether or not they are real or not. But this one sort of struck me as like, if you were writing a letter where you were trying to make yourself sound 
bad, I think this is what you would write. <laughs> um, and again, that's again, that's not to say that like I can only the things that I would want to say to make myself look good are the same things everyone else would agree upon. So I, I can certainly understand there's definitely people with just different values um, and uh, ideas about what makes somebody look sympathetic or, or persuadable or something. Um, so it's certainly entirely possible that somebody in this position did write this letter. But even if this is somebody kind of like writing about an idea of a certain kind of person, I, I think what felt really compelling to me about this was it is so easy when you are thinking about somebody else's perceived shortcomings to become just so convinced that you're doing the right thing. And I think that's the thing I wanted to focus on here because I think like you, my first read of this letter was, I think this person's way off base. I think they're doing something really wrong. I think they're convincing themselves that they're doing something for noble reasons when they're not. And and I don't want to do too much of just like, you're wrong, you're wrong, because I, th I think that's pretty obvious. Um, but I, it did really interest me to think like, man, whenever I think I'm acting in someone else, else's best interests, I always manage to convince myself that I'm right and that I'm doing it for the purest reasons. And that if somebody else says you're you're actually hurting my feelings or this isn't helpful, I just I don't hear it. And, and that to me felt like I could I could relate to that. I could I could see myself in that position like I reading this letter made me feel very like smug at first, like, oh, I would never do that. And then I was sort of thinking of the ways in which, but every time I've been in a position like this, I've really thought I was doing the right thing. And, and I don't know if that feels at all, I'm sorry to say relatable, uh, maybe like something that feels true for you as well. Or if just reading this, you felt like this person and I have nothing in common. I don't know what it's like to feel this way at all. No. I think it's really hard. I think the parent-child relationship is unlike any other relationship. And I think sometimes we can have a really close-minded view of our own children mm -hmm. where like we only see them as we've chosen to see them or as what they were like when they were five years old. And it's really can be hard for parents to sort of see a different version of their child or a version that other people are, are easy uh, to tap into and appreciate and love. And so I think this sort of like tough love approach to parenting of like, let me fix you so you can have the kind of life I think you should have. I get where it comes from. I think past generations have maybe fallen into that trap more than I hope Hope that, you know, millennials and Gen Z will. Um, but, you know, ultimately, like if someone loves your daughter and wants to be with your daughter and your reaction is something must be amiss here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's really a signal to sort of sit down with yourself and say, you know, maybe I have the wrong perspective on this. Maybe I am only cued into things I want to change that I think aren't good. And maybe I need to open my eyes to the fact that obviously my daughter is a complex, full person who has a lot of positive aspects to them that obviously is so, you know, like engaging or attractive that that she has, you know, created this wonderful relationship with another wonderful mm -hmm. person. And maybe I'm the problem here. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think like, again, it was it felt when I read this letter, I was like, I feel like I, I could list with perfect accuracy the letter writer's problems. And I think why I felt like this was maybe useful to talk about was it, it's just a useful moment for me to think man, when I have in my own life become convinced that some couple I know is not well-matched, 
like God could descend from heaven and tell me I'm wrong and I wouldn't believe it. Do you know what I mean? Like I get <laughs> so confident when I've decided this couple doesn't match or like one partner is clearly superior to the other and everyone else in the world not only would agree with me, but should agree with me. And that whatever standard I'm applying to both of them is the only standard that really matters here. And it's kind of remarkable the degree to which I can. And again, I wouldn't go around telling someone over and over again, you should break up with your partner because I think they're not with you for the right reasons. I wouldn't do that. But I've certainly privately thought like, oh, I think this or that couple might not, uh, you know, there's got to be something else going on. And I think I think that's part of why I was interested in the question of like fakeness here is this sort of question of when we think we know somebody else's motives or when we think that we know that something is amiss, we can get sometimes really confident without actually having evidence to back it up. And there's this sort of appeal to, well, you know what I mean, or I can just tell. Um, that I think is really interesting. Like, what are the moments in our lives in which we reach for a certainty that can't be backed up with proof or evidence or justification? Like, it doesn't seem like the girlfriend in question has done or said anything incredibly shady um, or has you, you even, like, caught her, like, stealing from your daughter's purse or, you know, you don't mention, like, my daughter has a huge trust fund and she's, like, trying to get her hands on it. You know, like, if there was some sort of behavior or something that the girlfriend had said, that had given a rise to these suspicions, the letter writer totally would have mentioned it. But instead, there's just this certainty of, because I find these things about my daughter off-putting and everyone else in the family agrees, obviously everyone else in the world would too. And and gosh, I, I don't even want to like say definitively, the letter writer might have some great points. Like Especially when it comes to grooming, your, your kid might absolutely have some habits that a lot of people would find off-putting. I don't even mean to be too hard on the letter writer here, so much as just it's very easy for us to think what I dislike or what embarrasses me is universal and everyone else agrees with it and feels the same way as I do. And it can feel so shocking and destabilizing to, to hear somebody else be like, I, I think it's kind of cute or like, I didn't really notice it. And it's just like, how could you not notice it? Like, why aren't you judgmental about the same things I'm judgmental about? But I don't know if, if that's something you don't experience a lot of, but this this to me, I felt sort of called out by this letter because it reminds me of my worst self when I'm judgmental sometimes. I think it's something I've been actively working on as mm -hmm. I get older. I think I used to really view the world as like my way or the highway. My preferences are the right preferences. Like I would do the same thing with couples where I'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. And as I've gotten older, I've just realized that I don't really know much. <laughs> <laughs> that like I have sort of like let go of feeling certain about almost anything. Mm -hmm. And if I see a couple that seems happy, I'm like, there must just be something going on there that I just don't totally get or that they're drawn to something about each other that either I'm not aware of or that I personally don't prioritize, but that they do. And I think that it's so helpful to actually be able to say, like, I move in the world a way that is different than other people, and neither one is right. They're just different. And it, it's it kind of, like, very freeing, because when you do that, then you're not constantly trying to change other people, because you're not like, oh, let me get you to the right side. Let me fix this up for you. Let me get you... Right. You're not, like, let me ranking get you aligned. People. Yeah, you're like, oh, we're all different. We're all doing our thing, and, like, okay, I, I wouldn't want to 
date someone like my daughter, but I'm glad this woman does. The good news is you literally never have to. <laughs> right, exactly. Your daughter is categorically a person you never have to date. I was just thinking of like the Roger Rabbit problem, like famously in that old movie, Roger Rabbit. Um, people keep asking Jessica Rabbit why she's with Roger Rabbit. And she's just like, he makes me laugh. Right. Um, and I think there's like, you know, go to go to that or go to like the old Joe Jackson song. Is she really going out with him? Like there's a sort of rich cultural tradition of people being like baffled and even angry about somebody else dating somebody in a way that doesn't affect them at all, but acting like it does. And just realizing like, well, you can you can sound sort of like baffled and powerless and and interfering or you can just sort of like chalk it up to well, life's a rich tapestry and kind of let it go. And I, I just think especially with something like a kid, it's like your kid is clearly past the age of 18. It sounds like living out of the house. I, I get that it can maybe feel like an art project that you don't want to finish tinkering with. But at a certain point, you have to say like, I raised my kid and I did my best. And if I didn't get everything I wanted out of it, like time's up, you have to hand in your work. You have to say, not that you'll never, ever want to help like guide or enlighten your kid again as an adult, but like the time when you could directly like influence the outcome of like, how does my kid behave in public or what lessons am I going to teach my kid about grooming or hygiene or cleaning up after yourself? Time's up, you know, supermarket sweep is over. You got to go back to the counter and like count up what's in the cart. And you just need to say like, there's a real limit to how much advice I can give my grown child. And if I keep giving it after they've already told me that they don't want to hear it, it's not going to get more effective. It's it's going to just make my kid want to spend less time with me. So just purely in the sense of like what strategy is likely to get you the things that you want. I think if you were to keep saying to your kid and do this with your hair and do this when you brush your teeth and like change your deodorant or, uh, you know, make different kinds of like faces when you meet people in public, you would not actually get a kid who started doing more of those things. You would get a kid who dodged your calls more often. That's definitely my fear in reading this letter. My fear is not that this girlfriend is up to something and going to hurt the daughter. My fear mm -hmm. is that the parents are actively hurting the daughter every single day. And it's really, it's really sad. You know, like I, I, I get the, the motherly instinct of I want the best for my kid. But honestly, the best for your kid is to feel loved and supported by their parents. <laughs> It's like, so funny too. I just realized when you said that, I, for some reason, I'd been assuming that this letter writer was a father and we, we oh. actually don't have any reason to know which one it is, but um, I, yeah, I guess I went way. to mother. I, I'm sorry. I mean, no, I, I can assumption. see both. I made an I did assumption. Too. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but yeah, just like either way, right? It wouldn't be like, oh, if they were a mom, this would be fine. Oh, if you were no. a dad, it's not so bad. Like it's bad in both directions. I can definitely see possibilities in both directions. But yeah, whatever kind of parent you are. I almost think parents overthink how to parent in a lot of ways where like what what really builds a good foundation for your kid is just that love and support and being able to feel like I can explore the world I can be myself I can try new relationships and I have this secure base that is ready to support me and catch me instead of nitpick and judge and chastise and you know belittle that's just setting yourself up to have a bad relationship with your adult child. Right. And I, I get why it can be really hard, especially when your goals for your kid can feel as sort of like easy, safe, good. It's like, well, I'd like my kid to go to college. I'd like my kid to have more friends. I'd like my kid to be able to 
ease up in early phases of relationships. They don't scare off partners. Those are all good things to want for my kid. Why then is it wrong for me to try to offer suggestions or helpful advice or to steer her away from what I fear are harmful or delusional situations? And again, it's just the like, time's kind of up. Um, At a certain point, adult children are way less likely to learn important life lessons from their parents saying something to them And they're much more likely to learn it from painful experience or other people or their peers or um, from themselves or a spiritual tradition they join or something. And again, none of that's to say you should feel like a piece of shit for wishing your kid had gone to college, just that you got to let go of the fantasy that saying for the 90th time, why don't you go to college is going to result in your kid having that value in the same way. And so I would just say, again, I'm not even trying to persuade you to see your kid differently. I would just say in terms of what might be effective, um, you have tried. Oh, I'm pers- I would persuade you to see your kid differently. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I think I think that's where we got to start. We got to start at like, I am I being hypercritical of this person that I say that I love. Yeah. And that's not good. That's not that that is depleting them. That is harming them. That is hurting them. Mm-hmm. And instead being able to say, I need to show up for my kid in a different way than the way that I think will be helpful. Right. And again, I really can understand, like, I wish my kid had a lot of friends. I wish that relationships came easily to my kid. That itself is not a bad starting place. But there's so much anxiety around, I need to fix this, that you've kind of lost sight of what's the goal here, which is to be like generally loving and supportive to my kid. And so you're losing out on opportunities to connect with your kid as she is because you're trying so hard to get her into this category that you think she needs to be in. Um, And again, none of that's to say, like, it's probably great that uh, she's been disappointed in dating before. I don't mean that. I just mean, if worrying about that a lot and pushing, 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 we're going to help your kid get there, it would have worked already. And so I think just to be able to say, whatever problems my kid is going to have in life, they're her problems. I'm now out of the parenting phase where I can directly intervene in most of them. And I would I would rather get to know her as she is and sometimes bite my tongue and like let her figure her own life out rather than continually trying to impose my values and my desires and my objectives onto her. I think especially that bit about, you know, I think this is heading for disaster. It's just like, well, I think you just mean a breakup. And yeah, that would be sad if they broke up. But everyone who dates goes through breakups. That's like a very normal human experience. And I think this desire to shield your daughter from even the possibility of getting her heart broken is just like, that's, you're getting close, dangerously close to wanting to have like a boy in the bubble lifestyle for her of like, mm-hmm. I don't ever want her to get dumped. Well, everybody does. Everybody, even even the most like attractive, compelling, like even Elizabeth Taylor got dumped. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think anybody could argue that Elizabeth Taylor like didn't know how to groom herself or didn't have social graces. Like she had all of that in spades and she still got dumped. And so I think there's, it's this fantasy of like, if my kid could just like up her stats in these other categories, she would never be disappointed or sad. And it's like, that's, that's just not true. So I think there's actually weirdly elements of helicopter parenting here, which I wouldn't have assumed because at first I was like, this parent's so critical, this parent's so judgmental. I don't associate that with helicopter parenting. But it's like, I'm so upset at the thought of my kid experiencing life on life's terms without my intervention and like supervising it that I can't let that happen. And that to me feels like, boy, helicopter parenting and hypercritical parenting are not two tastes that go great together. 
you're also sending the messaging that they can't handle life, right? Mm -hmm. You're sending the messaging, well, I'm trying to avoid disaster for you, but it's like, but why? I'm an adult. I'm over 18. I, I can go through the motions of what it is like to engage in the world and in relationships and in life. And so it, it's, it's sending this message that like you can't function in a way that I think is also really detrimental. Yeah. And I think to just, you know, in moments where you feel tempted to offer a criticism or ask again, why do you think your girlfriend's going out with you or to offer a warning? Just ask yourself, when I was her age, if my mother or father had said, I don't think the person you're dating really cares about you, I think you should break up with them. Is there any chance that I would have listened to them? Is there any chance that I would have said, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. Thank you. I'll dump them now. Or do you think you would have said, you know, that's that's crazy. You sound nuts. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Knock it off. Get off my back. You would have said those things. Or you would have taken in the messaging that you're unworthy of love, that this person's too good for you, that you can't possibly have a normal, healthy relationship, and and therefore you must be being duped in some way. I mean, that's what the kid is probably taking in from what this parent thinks is helpful guidance. Yeah, I guess I just think anything that would take you away from talking about your kid like a souffle you're not sure about. You know, sometimes when you like have people over for dinner and you want to say something kind of self-deprecating just in case it's not perfect. And you'll say like, I didn't have as much time as I wanted to or like, oh, I think I got the wrong kind of cheese for this or like, oh, you know, conditions weren't perfect. So like, I I'm sorry for putting something in front of you that's not perfect. You know, that kind of talk that sometimes people do when they've made you dinner. Yeah, it's it's harmful. Kids hear the way that you talk about them. Your kid's not a souffle. <laughs> the and, kid and again, is not a souffle. <laughs> yeah, like you're done tinkering. I think that needs to just be the goal is like, I'm, I need to be done tinkering. Well, I don't even like the tinkering when they're younger. I mean, I think that we need to take a step back and think about like having bro much broader goals for our children where the goal is literally just are they happy most of the time? Are they able to emotionally regulate? Do they seem like they're following a path that is fulfilling and exciting for them? And then the rest is details that that specific kid gets to build in about their life. Instead of, this is the life I want my kid to have, let me shape and morph this child into that path. Yeah. So I, I think really just the best way through this would be for your goal for the next phase of your relationship with your daughter to have it be one of non-interference. Like if, if you find Star Trek helpful, go with the prime directive. If you don't, don't. And, I, you know, if you would find seeing a therapist about this helpful, absolutely. You don't have to. But just to make it your goal, like not to offer constructive criticism, criticism of any kind, suggestions, advice for like the next six months. And if you catch yourself having to bite your tongue a lot, figure out like, what can I do to make this easier? Like, do I need to remind myself? Do I need to like have a little like rubber band around my wrist? I like snap whenever I'm tempted to do it. Do I need to like set up a little rewards jar where like if I go a month without advising my kid, I can take myself out to a nice meal or something like whatever you can do to sort of interrupt that like, oh, let me fix you today. Um, I would encourage you to do that. And if you find it really hard, you know, maybe reach out for some more support, but make your goal just to be to experience spending some time with your kid. And and again, it's hard because like if you've raised someone and you have ideas about what you think they should want for their life, I'm sure it's hard to feel like, but I know you better than anyone. But I, I think it would be really good here to let go of your sense of expertise and just approach your daughter with more curiosity, more respect and more 
just deference in the sense of she needs to be able to make her own decisions and mistakes. Even if I don't think they're the right ones, um, we're not going to become closer if I'm always, always telling her what I think she's doing wrong or always warning her that someone else is going to hurt her. You know, I, I felt sad about that line again, like if this is a real situation and the letter writer's daughter has already said, you're hurting me. And the letter writer's response was just like, no, I'm not. Why are you so confused? That that would be really sad. Um, I, I hope that you can let go of that. I don't even know what to call it. Uh, wrong idea. <laughs> Misguided love <laughs> or misdirected love in a lot of ways. Yeah, she's not a souffle and good luck and Thank you for reminding me that whenever I have made a snap judgment about some other couple's suitability for one another, I am talking out of my own ass and I do not know <laughs> what I'm talking about. And I act like, yeah, I act like I'm the president of other people's relationships in, in ways that I have no business doing. So thank you for reminding me of what I look like when I do that. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So our second letter is similarly fraught, difficult family relationship. So uh, thank you for for bearing with me as we sort of struggle through how do you love people who drive you insane or who have like habitually hurt you in the past or who you have habitually hurt and don't want to hurt anymore because it's going to be really complicated and thorny and I, I should have thrown in a nice like I got a wacky neighbor or like an annoying boyfriend, but I didn't. So... The subject here is just another person who hurt her. I need help reconnecting or helping with my sister after I hurt her. Our father was an angry, violent alcoholic, and our mom only had us on the weekends where she let us be sexually abused. When I was 14 and my sister was 10, I saw a presentation at school about telling adults about abuse at home, and I told my teacher. My sister and I were separated after being removed from home, and my social worker didn't or couldn't give me information about my, where my sister went. I didn't talk to her for four years. Nobody wanted to adopt me as a teenager, and the only way I could think of to find my sister was to keep trying different group homes, so I got in a lot of trouble so they would keep moving me. I didn't find her, and that made the adults want to help me less. When I finally aged out of the system, I tried to find her as an adult relative looking to take guardianship. This meant I could finally find out where she was, only to learn that she still hates me for telling and getting us put in foster care, where she's had an awful time with further abuse and neglect. The last thing she said to me was that at least with our parents, we still had each other, and that after getting us removed from our home, she was abused alone. I feel so guilty that I made things so much worse for her, and also that I'd never thought of it like that. I tried to protect her from beatings and abuse and to give her any food I could find, and then by trying to help, I ended up effectively abandoning her. She obviously doesn't want to come live with me or even talk to me, and I don't know what to do. The last time I tried to help, I hurt her so badly. How do I help her now as a legal adult? I mean, there's so much about this that it's just really devastating. And I, I don't want to get too stuck on this, but I found myself really wondering if the letter writer had any legal recourse in terms of not being able to contact her sister during those four years when they were both in the system. Again, I, I'm just not an expert in foster care, and I don't know what it 
what the difference would have been between your social worker not knowing versus choosing not to tell you how to get in touch with your sister. But I know that at least the way it's supposed to work is even if siblings aren't placed in the same home, they're supposed to be able to like receive visitation and like spend time with each other. And I'm just deeply, deeply sorry that the system failed you in multiple ways, but particularly in in terms of not preserving a sibling relationship. And I realize you've got a lot on your plate right now and you might not have the time or the wherewithal to like first get a meeting with a lawyer, but I would encourage you to add it to the list of possible things to look into in the next year or so, just to see if there's any possibility that you can get more resources um, for the state or from the state rather, um, given given the way that it sounds like your case was seriously mishandled. But I, I have no sense of what that might look like or what the odds would be if you're getting anything. So I, I don't want to make any more promises in that direction. It's a really hard situation. And I think part of what the letter writer isn't making enough space for potentially is that they were also a child who was also being abused. So it's not like they were an adult who somehow let another child down. Like they were also in a horrific situation that they could not have possibly predicted the outcome of. I mean, that kind of abuse and trauma, it messes up our whole bodies. It 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 makes life really, really difficult. And I think moving forward, because unfortunately we can't rewrite history, my suggestion would be to just make sure that your sister always knows that there's an open door. Hmm. So instead of trying to force the relationship or give up on the possibility of a relationship, I would see if there is some way to just Every few weeks, send a little something that lets them know that you'd love to hear from them when they're ready. And that if they ever need you, you are there, that you're thinking about them, that you love them. And you just don't know what will happen. I mean, I can't sit here and say in six years from today, she'll finally be ready to have a, a relationship. But I do know that in times of crisis and in times when we're really low, knowing that there is someone that is there for us can be really powerful and meaningful. And so I think just finding a way to get that message across that no matter what you're there, that you want a relationship, but if that's not what they want, you're happy to respect that. Because I think with abuse, a lot of times boundaries have been just plowed through. So I don't think that like aggressively trying to reconnect is it might really put up her sister's sort of you know, put up some walls, but letting it be clear that like when they're ready, if they are ever ready, you're there and you're there for anything. You're there. They need money. You're there. They need emotional support. You're there to pick them up uh, when they are too drunk to drive. That like really just sort of making it clear that you are waiting in the wings for if or when they ever want to take you up on it. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that because that feels like such a genuine like possible outcome of like if you're too drunk to drive I don't care that you hate me but you could still like I could see that totally um but it feels very like real in a certain way and yeah it's so hard because on the one hand I really want to stress to this letter writer both that your sister's pain and like lashing out given her age and her circumstances is really understandable I get it and I, I I think it's good that the letter writer has a lot of like patience and forgiveness for it and I just also want to be really really clear your sister is not right that this is your fault. That is not true. That is informed by a child understanding of what happened. I would hope that with like 
continued time and and just maturity, she would realize that that was she just needed someone to blame and you're the only one available. But you yourself were a child. You were also being abused. The fact that the system failed you in so many ways when you reported it is not something that you could have known at 14, right? Like all you knew was the presentation. No one had said like, here's exactly how, you know, CPS is going to work in your particular situation. No one was sharing that information with you. You had no way of knowing. Um, And of course, right now she feels like the separation was the worst thing, but it's also possible that you know, you could have been killed. I, I don't I don't say that like lightly either, but like you were suffering some pretty extreme abuse at home and it is absolutely possible that it could have escalated to a, a far more dangerous situation. So again, I think it's right for you to have like patience and, and tolerance towards her lashing out. But I just really, really want to stress um, you did not cause any of those things. The fact that at 14, someone pulled you out of your home, put you in a series of group homes, wouldn't tell you where your sister was, and you weren't able to like, I don't know, uh, do enough like social media stalking that you could eventually find her. That's not on you. Um, You did not do any of those things. You did not cause that harm. I realize that's not going to make her feel better tomorrow. And I realize that that's not something you can just argue her out of feeling, but just so that you know you did the best you could in an incredibly bleak situation and um, you do not need to take on all the things that she wants to assign you. And, and I, I loved, I thought, your idea about checking in occasionally. I think this is one of those cases where it would be potentially okay to continue like sending out a little beacon that even normally if somebody's like, never talk to me again. I really advise the letter writer to not do that. But I, I can understand here why keeping that beacon going, especially given her age and the fact that she might currently be in an abusive situation and and could need you, um, is a good one. Um, obviously something that is like low impact enough that you're not going to risk causing a blow up, but just something that keeps the door open, I think is a really, really good idea. I also think that it seems like there's a potential that by being so concerned about your younger sister, you're not realizing that you need to heal too. Does that make sense? That like you are also a child and that you also went through all these horrible things and that sort of that caretaker instinct that you clearly have could also be applied to yourself and your inner child. That like it could be a really wonderful thing to really to care for yourself, you know, during this time where your sister is maybe rejecting you to continue to send out those beacons, but to also say, like, let me care for that 14-year-old too in this way. And and um, and then also, you know, if you ever are in touch with her, having gone through, I mean, who knows, maybe you've already done this. I have absolutely no idea. There's a great chance that you have. But, you know, you doing your own healing is something that could really then also be like a wonderful roadmap for your sister if you ever do able to to form a relationship in the future. And it's also just something that you you deserve. You deserve to be taken care of as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to just imagine like if a 14-year-old had come to you and said, my sister and I are being abused at home, would your advice to that 14-year-old be keep it to yourself so that you and your sister can definitely stay together? 
I think you know probably immediately, no, that would not be your advice. And again, if sometimes it's just helpful to think of the situation without including yourself because it can be easy to blame yourself. And I think just imagining like, would I ever advise a 14-year-old to just like deal with two abusive parents because of the possibility that the system would split the siblings up? Just that that wouldn't have worked. Like her her fantasy, her coping mechanism for admittedly an incredibly painful and difficult situation is if we had stayed together, at least I would always have had my sibling. But you could have been killed. You could have been seriously, seriously injured. Um, you could have run away and f- like your only option was to flee and thus been separated in that way. Um, there's so many other different ways that the situation you were in was not tenable. And so I think, again, you can have a lot of patience and, and compassion for her coping beliefs or her resentments, but you don't have to share them. You don't have to internalize them. And yeah, I think your advice about like, keep the door open. Now, if she's like genuinely like, uh, if you try to contact me again, I'm going to like, I'm going to lose it or I'm going to like get a restraining order. Don't keep sending the beacons at that point. You might want to keep like a little, I don't know, a little box where you can occasionally, you don't have to do the full like notebook, but like you can occasionally, when you're thinking of her, write down something you wish you could say to her and store it. And then that way you just both have a record for yourself. And also if someday she does feel differently or change her mind, um, you'll be able to sort of have something that you can kind of invoke or gesture towards as a sort of, you know, reminder of like, I was not, not thinking about you. You were always on my mind. Um, but beyond that, yeah, to, to, to treat yourself as equally someone who suffered deeply. You weren't just like off, you know, having a blast. You were like acting up in group homes, trying to find her the only way you knew how, like you were not just some, you you didn't just like get off easy, right? Like, yeah, you, you deserve your own peace and healing, even if right now you're not able to reconcile with her and look out for her. But again, to that end, I would also really advise you to like talk to a lawyer just to get more specific ideas about, what rights you may or may not have or what recourse you may or may not have about the way that the system handles your case. I also think like potentially creating a special email account that you give your sister the login information to where you weekly or monthly send an email there and then they can choose, she can choose if she wants to check it could be like a a nice middle ground where you feel like you are still writing to her, you're still connecting with her, you're still showing how much you care, but then she gets to decide if and when she engages with those letters. And also people change. Like I think that the fact that right now she's not ready does not mean that she won't always be ready. People's perspective changes. People get wisdom from lived experience. She could very well change how she feels about the whole situation um, in a few years um, or even a decade. And then I think there's also something to be said about potentially, and I don't think everyone needs to do this. I don't think it's healing for everyone, but sometimes doing advocacy work um, against the systems that have harmed you can be healing. So, you know, potentially doing some advocacy about trying to fix the foster care system, potentially one day becoming a foster care parent for yourself. You know, these are some ways outside of your relationship with your sister that maybe you can kind of fight back against against the system that's so that's so hurt both of you. Yeah. I think those are all really lovely ideas, possibilities. And, you know, letter writer, if that sounds like it'd be meaningful, do that. If the idea of fostering feels like I, uh, you know, 
that would bring up too much for me. I wouldn't want to do that. That'd be too painful. Please don't feel like you have a special obligation to do so. It's oh, only yeah. just <laughs> suggestions. And not that I thought you were implying that at all. I just, uh, I, I can imagine feeling really fragile in this moment and feeling sort of like, I guess if I can't take care of my sister, I can at least try to take in other people, even if that feels like it would destroy me. And so I just want to really remind the letter writer, especially when they're facing so much recrimination right now, um, I want you to be as easy on yourself as you possibly can and to do things that feel useful, helpful, possible, easy on yourself. That's what I would want. And I think that's all I've got for that one, unless there's any final thoughts you have for that letter writer. Just to be kind to yourself as much as you can. That's always my advice for everything. Yeah, it's often really good, you know. Um, and and it, it just also feels like, you know, based solely on the titles of the books that I got to read out loud a few minutes ago, this is the kind of thing that you've given a great deal of thought to, like navigating relationships where there's a, an overabundance of uh, like history, archival information, resentments, shared experiences, and and no real sense of, but what do I do with all these feelings? And so um, I'd just love to know a little bit more about like, you know, what sort of shapes or informs your writing about like obsessive thinking uh, and then also trying to act in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect that. Yeah. So I should clarify, my first two books were YA novels um, that dealt with mental health themes and friendships and romance, but um, were fiction. And then Overthinking About You is a nonfiction book that's sort of a blend of memoir and self-help that really mm. examines the intersection between mental health and romantic relationships. Because I think that romantic relationships have an ability to really stir up things inside of us that maybe other aspects of our lives don't. Mm -hmm. um, so I just really wanted to kind of like give some tools and insight into maybe how to engage in these relationships like in a less dangerous way. So it's not as turbulent for our mental health to put ourselves out there and and try to make these really meaningful connections that can bring so much to our lives. So it sounds like the advice is not keep overthinking, stay the course, <laughs> uh, just just obsess over every moment and every interaction you've ever had, which I don't know why, but part of me is always like, maybe one day that'll work. Maybe that will work someday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have to kind of look at what's serving us and what's not serving us. And, and a big thing is also, you know, if you have certain mental disorders like anxiety disorder or depression, you know, those things can really interfere in how we show up in relationships in ways that we might not even realize. So sort of being able to separate our our symptoms from our true personalities and our true wants and and the way that we want to view the world versus the way that maybe our anxiety or depression is clouding how we view the world can be really helpful. Did you find that the project at all changed from the sort of beginning of the writing of it to the end? Like that you felt like I had a clear idea at the beginning and then that sort of changed the further I got into this project? Or did it feel pretty consistent from start to finish? Because I can imagine writing anything about overthinking could really lend itself to, uh, do I need to stay the course? Do I need to change? What do I do with these new ideas that are coming up? <laughs> well, there was a, a big uh, hiccup in the middle, which was, I got engaged while I was writing it. And then my fiance left me six months later. Mm -hmm. And so the original last chapter of the book was really about our relationship and, and how to maintain a healthy relationship only for that relationship to abruptly go away. And so I sort of had to be kind of like the first guinea pig of all the lessons of the book and really mm -hmm. use what I had researched and learned to to help myself through that breakup and that 
devastation and and um, not give up. So now the the final chapter is, is a completely rewritten chapter that's basically like, how do we keep going even when these really hard experiences happen? How do we not give up on wanting love and maintaining love? And so it was kind of, I, I mean, I wouldn't wish a broken engagement on anyone, but it was sort of this like, oh, I got to test out sort of these theories in the book and, and yes. they do work. <laughs> Yes, that makes a, a lot of sense. Neither neither would I hope for more of that uh, for anybody. But yeah, a real sense of, okay, this isn't just about uh, writing a project where I come off looking really, really together and like I have everything sort of finished um, and there's ways to incorporate surprises, loss, disappointment into this work that's like, oh, it's, it's kind of working. That's kind of great. Again, not great, like fantastic. I hope somebody else proposes to me tomorrow and leaves next Thursday. Um, but similarly, uh, I had a book come out that had originally sort of ended on a sort of like nice note about me and my relationship with my father. And then uh, I became totally estranged from my entire family uh, before the book came out in this kind of sense of not only how do I incorporate this into the work, but also how much do I want to incorporate this into the work and how much of this would I rather uh, keep at a sort of greater distance until I have more of a sense of knowing what it is that I want to talk about. And and so, yeah, I can really relate to unexpected twists uh, in one's personal life uh, when you're like, this is not convenient to my publishing schedule. I know. But okay. <laughs> it's so hard. But I, I think that the more that uh, we as authors share the realities, the more helpful it is. You know, I think the book is is probably stronger for the fact that I didn't have a magical happy ending um, because that. It's not really true to reality in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, no, nothing that's going to work for someone is like, this will only work if things uh, go the way you hoped they would. Or this will only work if it ends up in like a stable relationship that lasts until the end of time. Like it's got to be able to carry you through just the general sort of vicissitudes of life. Not to bring it all back to our first letter, but thinking of, you know, a line like, um, I, I know this is heading for disaster. I've got to stop it. When it's just like, if it's heading for disaster, it's the sort of disaster everyone experiences every day. It can't be an emergency disaster because if it was an emergency every time someone was dumped or had their heart broken, we just wouldn't go on. Um, and obviously, like, that's part of what's, you know, so amazing and critical and terrible about romantic relationships is every breakup kind of does feel like a disaster. It's also kind of true, but it's it's equally true that it's the sort of disaster you have to incorporate um, just because it happens all of the time. And what I'm really interested in is how do we sort of set ourselves up to have those safety nets for our mental health, to have that support system built in to sort of know what coping mechanisms work for us, how to avoid the things that will only make it hurt more so that it's not, I can promise you a perfect relationship. It's I can help you get to a place where if that relationship doesn't work out, it doesn't completely destroy you. That's really a big goal with my work is like, how do we get, how do we get a little more stable so that when those things do hit us, we don't fall over and yeah. into a, a big hole in the ground. <laughs> and frankly, just a great like goal, which is not complete destruction. That's the goal. I think we can accomplish this team. Let's make it happen. <laughs> like, it feels realistic, practical. Um, uh, that's lovely. And with that, we have offered all the advice that we're going to give for the day. How do you feel? How do you feel about our letter writers and ourselves in relation to them and, and yourself? Oh, I, I feel... Um... I feel a lot of sadness. I feel a lot of empathy. I also, you know, 
as always with advice, it's take what works, leave what doesn't. Yeah. You know, who who are we to to fix these problems that these people have been dealing with on their own for a long time? I think people are always the expert in their own life, but sometimes an outside perspective can sort of like unclick something for you to to sort of view it in a in a more serving way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for joining us and for providing such a just, you know, compassionate, clear-eyed perspective. I just appreciated it immensely and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Set a timer. Figure out how much time every month you can dedicate to having conversations with her. And as you were saying, just like, that's one of your good deeds for the month. Sorry to go like, just like full, like my Protestant upbringing, but they weren't wrong about everything. And you know, virtue is its own reward. It will be good to have just like occasionally listened to her say, I had a rough week and you don't have to take it all on yourself. You don't have to try to fix all of it. You don't have to listen for an hour, but you can give her a few minutes of, I'm really sorry, that sounds really hard. I love you very much. Uh, I hope you can take care of yourself later today. I'm going to go, you know, walk the dog. You can like give a little information about your day. You don't need her to like say that sounds fun, but you can just also incorporate nice things about the world into that conversation. And then you can hang up knowing you didn't just fix everything for her, but you did give her a little bit of time and attention. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.